Hi, I'm Trent Brown. You're listening to the Afternoon Adda at the Australia India Institute. We're joined today by a long-term friend of the Institute, Professor Anthony De Costa. Anthony is Chair and Professor of Contemporary Indian Studies and Director of the Development Studies Program at the University of Melbourne. Throughout his career, he's made a number of important contributions to understanding the dynamics of capitalism in the Asian region and the political economy of India, specifically in relation to steel, automotives and IT. His most recent book is co-edited with Professor Achin Chakraborty from the Institute of Development Studies, Calcutta. The book is titled The Land Question in India, State, Dispossession and Capitalist Transition. And today we're going to be discussing some of the really thought-provoking insights that the book offers. So, Anthony, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, land in India is an increasingly valuable commodity, but how has land been understood historically in India? Well, uh, historically in India, but also, uh, you know, in any sort of uh, uh, society that has been uh, undergoing certain kinds of economic transformation. So, the history of it pretty much comes from the Western narrative, and that is that land uh, initially was largely used for subsistence purposes, mainly to provide a very sort of basic sort of uh, uh, availability of food for the household, and if there was any surplus, if at all, uh, you know, that could be exchanged, bartered, or even sold for something else. Um, that was the sort of general sort of situation. But obviously, with the commercialization of agriculture, which is really the introduction of capitalist sort of dynamics, that is supply-demand coming into the place, and of course, prices operating uh, at, the, at that kind of a market sort of basis. On that basis, then, the farmers obviously had to uh, essentially become not so much subsistence, but rather commercial farmers, which means that they had to produce beyond what they needed for their own consumption. Mm. But how do you do that? That's the question. So there are a number of interesting things around it. One, of course, is making sure that the cultivator has the incentive to do so, which means that property rights, tenancy, these kinds of things become important. So historically, what has happened, and particularly beginning with, say, England, but then diffusing to other parts of Europe, and then, of course, elsewhere in other parts of the world, we basically see that the introduction of commercialization of farming begins by first taking land away from the tillers themselves, mm. which means that the surplus people that exist on the land are now increasingly pushed out or evicted, if you will, and they must sort of make some other form of livelihoods, either in, in the countryside itself or in the towns and cities that were emerging at the time. So this transformation is the way by which we have looked at development also. And that is, you have an X number of people in the countryside, which is probably too many, Mm. And the productivity of agriculture is very low. So how do you get an economy jump-started? You basically make agriculture productive, mm -hmm. which means that fewer people are going to be living on the land, but producing far more. In fact, they will be actually supporting the urban population uh, that, you know, that, is, that is not growing the food. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, this surplus-driven agricultural sector will drive the economy because then what happens is that 
the other people will be engaged in non-agricultural activities. Now, whether it's in the countryside or in the cities, but as we have come to know historically, that industrial cities emerged from the sort of proletariat, which then emerged out of the countryside hmm. because they got evicted out of their land. Right. Yeah. So this relates very closely to Terence Beyer's idea of agrarian transition. Absolutely. Which is one of the key concepts that you interrogate mm-hmm. in your new book. Right. It's really been a central uh, organizing principle, if you like, for Marxist economists throughout the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Could you explain for our listeners exactly what the term agrarian transition refers to? So the agrarian transition is just this, that is moving away from a subsistence to a kind of a commercial-based agriculture, which means that cultivators, households, peasants, if you will, are no longer actually peasants in the sense that they become capitalist farmers. And so peasants produce for themselves, capitalist farmers produce for the market, Mm. uh, which means that, you know, obviously the prices have to be attractive and so on. But that's what they do. And this is the transition. So which basically means by logical extension that the peasants disappear. Right. Uh, And so, you know, so the peasants disappear. We have basically capitalist farmers and they behave like other sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, agents that uh, sort of uh, respond to market signals. I see. Yeah. But one of the key contentions of your book is that this idea of agrarian transition doesn't really apply as a as a useful overarching framework for yes, understanding yeah. agrarian change right. in India today. Mm-hmm. So why is that the case? Okay. Uh, first, let me sort of preface that by saying that, you know, that this book, I mean, what we try to do, of course, is that first we engage with a very rich uh, literature on agrarian transition. In other words, the way it has been described historically for the, if you will, the early industrializers, but also the, the late industrializers or the late commercial development such as, such as India and, and perhaps other developing countries. We engage with that literature only because they actually did have a point and in fact, it is a fact of life that if you look around the rich countries, you'll find a very small percentage of people engaged in agriculture and they are feeding the rest of rest of the population of the country and, and some of them even beyond because they export as well. But that story doesn't hold for India and perhaps for many other developing countries for a number of reasons. One, of course, is that a country like India has a very large population. So reducing the number of people in the agricultural sector in itself is a daunting task. Now, if if we had the sort of right types of policies or the circumstances, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, Indian agriculture could have been made very productive. And therefore, many of these people would have left the countryside. That said, there is still uh, some migration taking place in India. In fact, today, I think the migration from rural to the urban areas is actually speeding up. For a long time, it didn't. Uh, in fact, India was one of the laggards when it came to migration. But today, it's kind of speeding up. But the interesting thing is that in the earlier examples, in the historical examples, we've had people migrating to the cities for whatever reasons, out of their own, you know, sort of volition or being pushed out of land or being indebted and so on. Those uh, uh, circumstances operate in India as well. But in the previous cases, there was industry to absorb them. Right. So the so that that industrial proletariat, which means essentially that you don't have the means of production anymore, you're separated from the means of production. But instead, now you must offer your labor to work for somebody else, which basically then the factories then absorb you. But the thing is that in, in, in the case of India, and for some very interesting reasons, not all of which are very clear to everybody, uh, and that is India is not really undergoing that kind of industrial transformation where this so-called excess people 
people from the countryside would be absorbed mm. so uh, yeah, yeah. so capitalist. so that would be one sort of important uh, sort of point to to recognize that why isn't this agrarian transition not taking place in part because the non agricultural sectors which is let's say the the industries the labor absorbing industries which as you know in the early stages of capitalism uh, industries were very labor absorbing Yeah. So in other words you know technology was relatively primitive and therefore more people could be absorbed right. but India is trying to industrialize in the 20th in and in, in the early 21st century so yeah India does industrialize in fact there are some interesting and dynamic industrial sectors but you don't find that employment is you know that sort of high and the reason for that is that India is also probably using technologies of recent vintages right. so that does not allow them to absorb you know more people so that's one then of course there are some local factors like you know lack of electricity for businesses and or, or and so on which means that they don't make the investments and therefore the industrial investments are not very very high in india as well to absorb these people so there is a what i would call a a, a disjunction between let's say uh, the the people leaving the countryside uh, for whatever reason mostly because of financial and uh you know lack of livelihood reasons uh, to the industrial sector in the urban areas where it's not dynamic enough or labor absorbing enough to capture these people mm-hmm. so the one thing that is going on with in fact the statistics will show you that one sector that is really booming in india is construction and the construction is basically urban construction so which means that these people who leave the countryside are able to find jobs in the cities in the urban areas but in construction and that is because the indian urban areas are also expanding very rapidly in terms of investments in you know uh, real estate and so on and so and factories so factories and so on. so the growth is actually a lot to do with construction but not really actually industrial output so much so if if we're not going to think about this process in terms of agrarian transition what's the alternative is there another conceptual framework that we can draw on? i don't think there is another conceptual framework because this is almost like a place that we have never been mm. uh so in other words people are real, sort of really trying to unravel this you know you know what sort of a state is this i mean the state of being if you will so you know uh, in the book but also in the in the in the lecture i had mentioned uh, or referred to you know uh, kalyan sanyal who's who's an economist but uh, he died a few years ago and he wrote a very perceptive uh, a book uh, about this particular aspect is that the, the the dispossessed that we have in india meaning people are losing their things which means land especially and they basically become a population which uh, for 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 whom there is really uh, nothing to hold on to and he calls it the dark space and he refers to this particular situation as what he calls non capital and by non capital he is also suggesting that they are not part of the larger capitalist dynamic now i may i have a slightly different uh, view whether this is non capital or not but that's not so important the point is that there are people who can't seem to make it into the mainstream of capitalist economic development and 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 we don't see what the final outcome of this is going to be because if you look at the indian uh, statistics the government statistics on the uh, the unorganized sector in fact this is where a lot of people end up is in the unorganized sector you'll find that the unorganized sector in india is persistent it's, it's not actually shrinking it's not shrinking when we know at least in terms of our theoretical and 
and historical sort of lessons that with capitalist economic development, the unorganized sectors becomes smaller and smaller. To, to give you an example, you know, for the United States in the in the in the early sort of uh, 1900s, the share of this unorganized sector, or if you will, actually self-employment. Let's put it as self-employment. Self-employment something was like 80 percent, which by the time you know a uh, hundred years later or so, you find it's about 10 percent. Mm-hmm. Whereas in India, the statistics show that of the unorganized sector, uh, the people who are in the unorganized are more than 50 percent are actually self-employed. Mm. But these are people basically who have nothing really. They are, they are basically creating jobs somehow to survive. So it's a coping mechanism than anything else. Right. Yeah. So it's uncharted territory. In a it's lot absolutely of uncharted territory. And I don't think we really have an answer. So even if the government of India says, well, yeah, we will industrialize and, and we will create jobs and so on, that's fine. But the question is, can you create the kind of, the number of jobs that are really needed if you're going to make you know, the agricultural sector a viable one. In fact, the Indian agricultural sector is not even a viable one in many in many respects because the, the land holding sizes have become very small. So they are uneconomic in size. Uh, but the the peasants, of course, don't want to sell the land or par- part with the land mainly because they, they don't have any other alternatives. So they just kind of hold on to somehow manage it. Mm. So that's one. The other is that increasingly uh, there, there is some instances of what we call non-cultivating households which basically means that there are people who have land, but they are not cultivators. So they rent out the land. Now, who might want to rent out, I mean, uh, use the rented land? Well, it would be other landowners who may want to enlarge it. And this may be a response to the fact that there are a lot of uneconomic sizes of land owning. So the Indian agricultural sector needs to have a sort of a deeper look. But I think we've run out of solutions because we've had the green revolution. So when you look at the green revolution, yeah, productivity has gone up only in a certain part of the country. Uh, and I think one of the things you do see, of course, is that although this is not and this is not a, a, a I mean, I don't have real scientific evidence for it. But we also see that there has been a lot of out migration from the Punjab and Haryana areas precisely because they are not needed in the in the land anymore because they, they, they have become more, far more productive. So a lot of migrants actually you see, whether in the country but outside the country, are actually Punjabis uh, you know, from these areas. Mm-hmm. So can we have another green revolution to solve this problem? Well, even if we did, what will the people do who then have to leave the countryside? If there's nothing to absorb them. Absorb them, exactly. Right, right. One of the ideas that you develop in your book is, is the fact that land is being commodified in a lot of new ways. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the implications if land is treated as a commodity as opposed to some of the the, uh, earlier uses that you mentioned before? Yeah, I think the commoditification of land, I mean, um, in a certain sense, is not really a a, a huge problem. It becomes a problem when people... So people's livelihoods are dependent on land. That's when it becomes a problem. So let's say, I mean, if India were to be like some of the early industrializers. So yes, over time, land would become a commodity. It would be transacted, bought and sold. There would be fairly well-defined property rights. So, you know, there weren't, there wouldn't be abuses of people being just, you know, unjustly, you know, removed or evicted. All of those things would, be, the institutions would be in place. So which basically would mean that, okay, people are doing, obviously non-agricultural things. So then land becomes in that sense transactable. But here we are talking about people who whose livelihoods depend on the land that they hold. So if it becomes a commodity, then farmers themselves probably won't be able to buy the land because they are are making out a very small living. 
But what may happen, of course, is that there are non-agricultural interests. So the government's program regarding special economic zones being one, uh, a real estate development because the cities are growing, middle classes, their incomes are going up. There's a certain demand for land. I'm sure you're aware of the wealthy in and around Delhi buy what is known as farmhouses, you know, basically buying, you know, places with a lot of land outside of the cities, but that have been somehow got around it because they are not agricultural land, because they're not supposed to be buying agricultural land. Okay, so there is what you call a non-agricultural demand for land when land is commodified. What that means, of course, is that there's tremendous pressure on the cultivators to essentially part with the land, Hmm. right? To part with the land. In fact, for a long time, uh, they had to, they parted with the land because they they, they couldn't do anything else. The state uses this notion of eminent domain, uh, which basically means the state has the right when it, uh, to take over land, of course, with some compensation, no doubt. But what is the compensation? Here is an interesting question. Is there such a thing as a fair compensation? So, in fact, we actually have a very nice, interesting chapter, actually, that talks about this fairness question. That, in other words, what is the compensation? So, the government in the 2013 Act, uh, Land Act, basically stipulated that, okay, let's make it a little bit easier for the farmers uh, uh, and not simply, you know, be on the side of the buyers, that is, the speculators and the, and the, and the real estate owners and so on, is that they, they put in certain types of conditions that 70% of the people who are affected by this land transaction, there must be a consensus among them that they would sell and that, that they would pay four times the market price that whoever's going to buy the land. Now, this may seem uh, as a fetter to the easy uh, sort of transaction or transactability of land, uh, which it, it may seem on the surface, but it actually isn't in part because, number one, the... Uh, even the four times the land price that we talk about, what is the market price? And that in itself is is, is an open question mm. because the uh, prices for land is, is sort of just shooting up. So you, even if you say four times, uh, it doesn't quite, we don't know exactly at what point we're measuring this market price. Mm. So that's one thing. But the other, I think, a more sort of subtle sort of uh, insight in, in, into this is that by enacting the Land Act uh, in itself, is a kind of an uh, understanding that land will become transactable. So you're, you're creating the institutional basis around which land can be transacted. Now, this, of course, creates the problem in the, in the sense that farmers, okay, I mean, there are, there are many instances, many anecdotal stories reported in the newspapers where farmers have sold their land for a hefty price. But they basically don't know how to use that money. They are not entrepreneurs. They spend it, they, they, they use it up, and in the end, they're back on the streets. So, obviously, we are talking about a situation where uh, making the land uh, easily available to the non-agriculturalists, I mean, yes, some of it will always be required for housing and infrastructure and so on. But the question is, how, what else do you do for the people on, in the countryside? Do you provide them with an alternative livelihood or not? That is the question. And if the industrial sector is not taking off as it should have been, then obviously, what are these people going to do? Mm. Uh, so construction is, remains the only sort of outlet, and that's a temporary one because once the building is done with, you're back on the streets again. Just to pick up something that you mentioned before, you said that the state sort of plays this role of coming in and, and almost suppressing market forces. 
Well, yes. I mean, what the state does actually is that, or what the state has been doing recently, is that it has been acquiring land on behalf of the industrialists. Right. Uh, on the grounds that, well, this is, there is a larger social good. So some public purpose is being served. But it would be hard to justify somebody who studies law that how you can, how you can get away as this as public purpose when you are actually taking away land from somebody who really needs it mm. and giving it to somebody who, you know, who has some other, you know, economic interests. And the point being that, uh, it's not even true. I mean, had it been the case that the land whose, whose land is being taken away were also given some other forms of employment or livelihood, then it's a different question. But these are not the same people. What they will get is some kind of cash. But that's about the that's about it. So the 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 the, the commodification of land has created a situation where you may have cash, but what do you do with cash? Cash by itself doesn't provide you with a livelihood. And this, I think, is the real sort of challenge with sort of commodification. So the state is acquiring land on behalf of capitalists. Now, this is also treading a very fine line because a state's job is not to acquire land, especially for capitalists. A state can acquire land if it wants to build roads, highways, ports, and so on, but not on behalf of capitalists. In fact, uh, you may know that in the state of Gujarat, when Narendra Modi was the chief minister, and of course, the, the business uh, of Adani, the Adani family, uh, they got land at very, very low prices. It has been reported in the newspapers. They got land at extremely low prices, which then, of course, gave them an upper hand in their sort of, uh, you know, their businesses themselves. Now, this is something that is not the job of the state. Now, once in a while, yes, as part of, if you will, industrial policy, but an industrial policy that covers, you know, all the sort of, you know, if you will, the industrial sector, not individual business owners or individual business families. So it's, it's, it's a very different thing. I mean, under an industrial policy, you can acquire land on behalf of an industrial sector with the idea that this is good for the economy, good for jobs, and so on. But you can't do it on an individual basis because that borders on crony capitalism. Mm. And, and, and so you really have to be very, very careful in terms of your policies. So the government cannot say that this is public purpose when it is actually private benefit. So is that how you would explain it, that this is an instance of crony capitalism? In this particular case, whenever the government has been acquiring land in this way and selling it to private businesses at lower than the market rate, of mm. course it is. Mm. Because it seems very counterintuitive. Like if you are going to commodify land, then at right. least farmers should be paid Paying the market, the market rate. price. Yeah. Exactly. So yeah, the market prices are being suppressed in that sense. Yes. Anthony, uh, we could talk about these issues all day, but I think we do have to wrap up. So for our listeners, once again, the book is titled The Land Question in India, State, Dispossession and Capitalist Transition, and it's available from Oxford University Press. I think it's a very important collection of essays and anyone at home who has an interest in agrarian change in India or broader questions about India's political economy, uh, sh they should consider ordering a copy for their library, for the university library. Uh, Anthony, it's been a pleasure having you. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Trent. Okay, that's all for today's Afternoon Adda. Catch you next time.